We are in Mark chapter 6. I feel like I say this often, but we, we have a lot of ground to cover. We've got 24 verses to cover. We're in Mark 6, starting at verse 33, and we're going to go to the end of Mark 6, which takes us to verse 56. So let's read that together, shall we? Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 33. Verse 33, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and get something to eat. Verse 37, But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii? A denarii is a day's worth of wages for the average laborer. Shall we spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? In other words, that won't be enough. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and look. And when they found out, they said, We have five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before all the people. And he divided up among the two fish, or divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves, not including the women and children. So you're talking 10,000 plus people. Verse 45, Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida, while He Himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, He left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and He was alone on the land praying. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, which is three to six in the morning, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Hmm. Just hours later, verse 53, when they crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on pallets those who were sick to the place where they heard that Jesus was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Let's pray. God, we love you and we love your word that you have graciously given to us. They are the words of life, and we're grateful. Lord, we pray that those words of life will continue to bring life into our hearts and minds and souls, into this church body. Lord, do what you intend to do. 
have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, here's our outline for these verses for this morning. Key word, if you will, for those first 12 verses is shepherd. We're going to talk about shepherd, shepherding. And then the couple of verses, the key word is solitude, where Jesus goes away to pray when he sends away his disciples and he sends away the crowds. And then really kind of key to what Mark is trying to do in his gospel is show that Jesus is the same as God, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. So we're going to look at sameness. And then the last few verses, um, saved, which we're not even going to get to section four. Um, it's just we don't have enough time. But uh, we'll leave that up. We might even have to put that back on. Um, so if you guys are taking notes, you can get that jotted down. Augustine said this, Augustine said that God became man so that man might become like God. Jesus is God in the flesh and He came to us so that we can become like His Father, like our Heavenly Father. Francis Chan, um, Jen and Steve Hogan told me about this book. I've heard of Francis Chan, of course. I've read one of his books, but he's got this book called Multiply. Great book and I'm kind of plowing through it here and there. Let me just read to you. He's in a section where he's talking about um, when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. And um, God calls Moses in the, in, from the burning bush, right? And he wants Moses to lead his people, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt, out of their bondage. And if you, if you recall that interaction between God and Moses, five times Moses basically says, not interested. Which is really cool, right? Really interesting. That would be just like us, I suppose. Though Moses was backpedaling from what God was calling him to do, there was two questions that Moses asked. Do you remember what they are? The first one was, who am I? Moses said, who am I? And then the second question was, you guys know the second question? Who are you? When they say, who sent me? Who do I tell them sent me? So Moses is asking two very important questions, excellent questions. They're the most fundamental questions, Francis Chan writes, that we could ever ask because everything in our lives, not only here and now, but for all eternity, is based on the right answer to those two questions. Who am I and who is God? God answered Moses' first question by pointing to himself. Listen to this. Moses asked, who am I? And God simply replied, I will be with you. No, no. Who am I? I will be with you. God's response at this point should be fundamental to the way we view ourselves. From the very beginning, God's people are known as those whose God is with them. Amen? We belong to Him and there is no way that we can define ourselves apart from God. It is His presence that, uh, with us that enables us to accomplish the tasks that He has given us. Powerful. God is with us. So the first word of the outline, shepherd, verses 33 through 44. Let's just kind of skim that again, okay? Start at verse 33, 33 to 44. So, so they take off in the boat and they come to the other side and there's a bunch of people, right? So Jesus comes to the shore in verse 34. He sees a large crowd and he feels compassion for them. Now the heading of this section says the 5,000 fed. And so we think, oh, he's compassionate because they're hungry. no. They just got there. They just ate, arguably. And they go to find Jesus. Why? When Jesus went, He felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's why He is compassionate. They're not even hungry yet. 
And He began to do what? He teaches them. There's a connection between being sheep and our shepherd and being taught the Word of God. So He teaches them. And He teaches them what? Many things because they had no shepherds. And when it was already quite late, His disciples said, this place is desolate and it's quite late. Send them away to the villages so they can eat. And He says, you give them something to eat. I don't even think they cared about dinner. They were willing to stay to hear the Word of God because they were hungry for the Word of God. But Jesus uses this opportunity to perform a miracle. Pastor Doug and I had an interesting conversation a couple weeks ago, and I said, when Jesus performs a miracle, is it really a miracle? I just think that's fascinating. It's, it's miraculous to us, but it's well within His nature to do so. I love that. When I see miracles from Jesus, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Makes total sense, right? Anyway, I divert. So, send them away, and He says, how are we going to feed them? Will 200 denarii of bread give them enough? No. How many loaves? And they said, five, and we have two fish. And he says, have them sit on the green grass, Mark says. Not the grass, Mark says green grass. And I think there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that later. Have them sit on the green grass. Interesting detail. And so they do in groups of 50 and groups of 100. And he takes the loaves and the fish and he blesses it. And they feed it to all these people. In verse 42, they all ate and they were all satisfied. And there were 12 baskets left over. And it says in verse 44 that there were 5,000 men. That means specifically males, not people. So all the women and children, you're talking 10,000 plus people at least. So Mark writes that he felt compassion for them. The word compassion is more than mere pity. It means to actually help. If we're going to have compassion as Christians, as a church, we need to literally help as Christ did. This word is used in the New Testament only by or about Jesus, this word compassion. Pretty powerful. Why did he feel compassion for them? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. The compassion of Jesus has nothing to do with physical food, but everything to do with them being lost. Jesus is never more compassionate than when we are lost. Something happens inside of our Lord when we are lost and outside of His Word, and that's why He feeds them the Word of God until it's quite late. I met with a gentleman a couple Fridays ago. He's 40, 40 or 41. And he told me story after story after story of how God has pursued him since he was 13 years old. It's 27, 28 years now. He knows it. And he still has not committed his life to the Lord. He's still not walking with the Lord. But we had a very frank conversation about that. When we're lost, God pursues us. I'm so thankful. As Francis Chan wrote, and I just read, we belong to Him, and there is no way that we can define ourselves apart from God and apart from His Word. In Psalm 23.1, the whole idea of shepherding, right? The Lord is my what? The Lord is my shepherd. Everybody knows this psalm. At least that line. It's probably the most widely known line or verse in all of Scripture. Generation after generation, both Christian and non-Christian alike, have taken comfort and encouragement from David's portrayal of God as a faithful and compassionate shepherd. 
The task of shepherd was to care for the sheep. Jesus cares for us. To find grass and water to refresh us, to protect uh, sheep from wild animals, to look for and restore those sheep that have strayed. The shepherd was responsible to the owner for every single sheep. Every single one of us is important to God. And Jesus is pursuing each and every one of us because we're important to Him and to His Father. I hope you're encouraged by that. Shepherd came to designate not only persons who herded sheep, but also came to refer to um, as uh, uh, kings and leaders and even God Himself. The shepherd, as a metaphor for God, is especially prominent in the exodus uh, from Egypt, as God led Israel like a flock through the Sinai Desert. God, Israel's true shepherd, promises punishment on those who did not care for his flock. It's a big responsibility I have, we as pastors have, we as elders and trustees have. It's a big responsibility. And so I'm going to do what Jesus did, man. I'm going to feed the word. And encourage you to eat the word as much as you can. It's the best thing we can do. Turn to Ezekiel 34. I got verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read all of those. Turn to Ezekiel. It's after Isaiah and Jeremiah, I think, unless they moved it. Ezekiel 34. This whole idea of shepherding is very serious to our Lord. I would encourage you to read all 10 verses. We're going to read maybe the first five or six. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. It's one of the things we wrestle with as elders is just making sure that you, the sheep, are protected, that we know what's going on in our classrooms and that we're feeding good food, good doctrine. Amen? The figure of the shepherd and his sheep is also prominent in the New Testament as well. In the Gospels, we know Jesus is portrayed as the good shepherd. He exhibits uh, compassion for the helpless. He seeks out the lost sheep of Israel. His mission is to gather those who have been scattered. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives up his life for the sheep. Paul looks at the church and its leaders as if it were a flock and shepherds, which we just mentioned. Paul warns the Ephesian elders of, you know, elders, shepherds, pastors, pastors, same word, elders, shepherds, pastors, same word. So he warns the Ephesian elders of false teachers and he calls the false teachers what? Anybody know? Wolves. He calls them wolves, false teachers, people with bad doctrine. And so good shepherds make sure that false teachers are not part of their flock. The Bible mentions shepherds and shepherding over 200 times. The Hebrew word, get this, for shepherding is often translated feeding. Feeding. 
And so when Jesus has compassion in Mark chapter 6, He feeds them the Word of God. Amazing to me. So you can see that connection. Jesus commissioned Peter when He says, Peter, do you love me? And what does He tell Peter to do? And Peter says, I do love you. What does He say? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed them the Word of God. So what did Jesus do? He sees them in Mark 6 as sheep without a shepherd because they were not cared for nor provided for spiritually by the Jewish and religious leaders. So He began to teach them and He teaches them many things and they don't care. They're just soaking it all in. And it says twice in our text that it was quite late. It was quite late. And I think they were absolutely fine by that. They were hungry for Him to teach them many things. There was no one to feed them good doctrine until Christ got there. They treasured the words of Jesus more than mere food, which was indicated in our text by how they forgot how late it was. They just didn't care. The compassion of our Lord is exhibited in many ways, for sure. But His Word is the primary way in which He feeds us and leads us. Amen? Matthew 4, 4, it'll be on the screen. It's also the same verse as Luke 4, 4, and both Matthew and Luke reference Deuteronomy 8, 3. When Jesus was being tempted, and He says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's never changed. He quotes it from Deuteronomy. One of the healthiest indicators... If we're sheep and He's our shepherd, one of the healthiest indicators of our relationship is positioning ourselves to be taught or fed the Word of God. You follow me? A healthy indicator of our role as sheep to our shepherd is how do we position ourselves to be taught the Word of God. Is this part of it? For sure. But this cannot be all. You will, you will be sorely disappointed if you're relying on me to do all your feeding. One of the best indicators of being lost, like a sheep without a shepherd, is not positioning ourselves to be taught or fed the Word of God. That's the danger side of it, right? You follow? That's when things are not good, when we're not positioning ourselves to be taught or fed the Word of God. That's when we're lost. <laughs> Essentially, this is the way we remember it, right? No Word in your life? No Word? Bad sheep. I know, it was short notice. Threw that in at the last minute. No Word? Bad sheep. You want to be a good sheep? You need God's Word. There's no other way. You're going to starve if we don't have this. Check this out. In John, go to John 6, a little bit to your right, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In John, the same thing happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. The same thing that we just had in the book of Mark. Now we're in John. But Jesus turns it into a sermon. Look at verse 20. Where am I at? 26? Do I have? Uh, yeah, I didn't put it on the screen. My bad. That's my fault. I didn't know if I was going to cover this. So it started in verse 26, right? So if you look before in verse 1, 5,000 are fed. Verse 15, Jesus walks in the water. And then in John records that Jesus turns it into a sermon. In verse 26, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Look in verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. He's talking about Himself and gives life to the world. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am that bread, the bread of life. Who comes, he who comes to Me will not hunger, and he who believes in Me will never thirst. Powerful stuff. If you want, you can turn to Psalm 23. If not, that's okay. We, many of us know that psalm. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we feed on God's Word, we are no longer wanting. He makes me lie down in what? Green pastures. Hmm. That word green, that Mark's alluding to, when we get to that part of sameness, right, Mark's saying this is the same guy. This Jesus is God. Because this is referring to God. And so Jesus, and Mark shows it, it, it by using the word green, it's the same, that they're the same. There's a sameness there. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness through His Word for His name's sake. Amen? Before we move on to solitude, another great takeaway. When He feeds the 5,000, acting on the basis of human wisdom, His disciples saw a problem How are we going to feed them? We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. They see on their human wisdom, they act on human wisdom, they see the problem but not the potential. That's just kind of how we roll, isn't it? How many times have we as God's people complained, we don't have the resources for that, God? I do something, but the resources aren't there. The first step is never to measure our resources, but to determine God's will. When we determine God's will, then we can trust Him to meet us with the resources. Amen? This went over pretty well last night, so I'll tell it again today. It was clearly God's will that my wife should marry me. <laughs> right? For me, it was, just, it was a no-brainer for me, right? But I didn't have the resources to make that happen. I was clearly lacking the resources, but I knew it was God's will, right? And you know how I knew I didn't have the resources? She said to me, you don't have the resources. And that's when I knew I didn't have the resources. But I had to convince her it was, I'm just being silly. On some level, it's totally true. Like me being married to my wife, like she, yeah, I don't even know what she was thinking. So we got engaged after four months because I had to close the deal, right? Right? Like before she changed her mind. So, you know, anyway. Second point, solitude. Thank you, honey. Solitude, verses 45 and 46. Mark 6, verse 45 and 46. Immediately Jesus, so all this happens, Right? And what does he do? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And while he himself was sending, and then he himself was sending the crowd away. So he sends the disciples, he gets rid of the crowd, bids them farewell, and he goes to pray. Like, really? There's a lot going on, Jesus. There's a lot of people that really, really need you. Yeah. And he goes to pray. What a great example. Jesus prayed. Indeed, Jesus had a lot of work to do. Much preaching yet to do, much preaching still ahead of him. Nonetheless, he was constantly in prayer. He prayed often and he prayed long. He prayed even though he was highly sought after. Go back to John 6. Go back to John 6, 14 and 15. The same story, right? So Jesus is done feeding people. 
And then he's, before he walks on the water, look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that the 5,000 performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15. Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. There's a lot of things that can nip at us, that keep us busy, the crowds, the work that we have to do. And we just got to cut that stuff off and go pray. And if you remember in Mark 1, you don't have to turn there, 35, 36, and 37, when basically the whole city's at the doorstep. And it's like, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And he went off to pray. There's always stuff to do. Always stuff to do. There's never enough time in the day to get that stuff done, but we must always find time to pray. Amen? He went alone to pray. Why? To set for us an example. One commentary I read this week, I love this line. It says this about prayer. A good man is never less alone than when alone with God. You get that? We're never less alone, which means we are so full of company when we're in God's presence. This should be such an encouragement to us to know that Jesus prays often and always because He makes intercession for us, Scripture says. Look at Romans 8.34. It says, Christ is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And some of us are keeping Jesus really busy. You know who you are. Right? That's fantastic. He's willing to do that for us. Augustine said this. He said, God wants to give us something, but He cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for Him to put it. And prayer is that opportunity to just get rid of that stuff. I remember years ago, Terry, would, my wife would say this to me as well. She goes, I just picture myself giving things to God. And I read a, um, and that always helped me. And then I read a couple years ago a spiritual discipline uh, book, um, just different ways to, you know, that are meaningful ways to connect with the Lord. And, and there was this thing called hands, hands down, hands up. You guys ever heard of this, right? And so when you're praying, you just picture yourself with your hands down, giving things to the Lord just literally placing them in his hands, just like my wife used to say years ago. And then we turn our hands over and we receive from him the things he wants to replace with, you know, for us. Does that make sense? And it's such a powerful way to engage God in prayer to say, Lord, I just need to give you, right? He wants to give us something, but he can't because our hands are full. And he says, just give it to me. And then I'll give you something in return. Amen? We, too, like Jesus in our text, must manage our time with the Lord. We need to dismiss the disciples. We need to dismiss the crowd and spend time with our God. Lastly, sameness, that last part of our outline, sameness, verses 47 through 52. Let's go back to Mark 6 and read those verses. 47, Mark chapter 6. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, about the fourth watch, again, that's three to six in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them or pass in front of them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they, saw, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they were terrified. But he spoke, and he said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat, the wind stopped, and they were astonished. But a sad verse, they had not gained any, not they had gained only a little, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
We're so guilty of that. It was less than 24 hours had passed by. I mean, did they think they were watching a movie? Right? Like, I, you know, sometimes I feel bad for these disciples. We beat up on them, don't we? And yet we're so similar. We're just so similar. Without, when it says that Jesus intended to pass by them, or pass before them, or pass in view of them, without question, he's testing them. Because arguably, what should have been their response? They're straining at the oars. They just hung out with them a few hours ago. What should their response have been when they see him walking on the water? I'm telling you what mine would have been. I'm struggling at an oar. I'm like, yo, Jesus, get in the boat, man. Either grab an oar or calm that doggone wind down. Either one's good by me. That would have been an adequate reply, right? That would have been absolutely fine. They should have known by then who he was and what he was capable of. But he arranges this to test their understanding of who he was. And again, in this moment, they failed. They had just completed a very successful missionary journey. Remember earlier in Mark 6, last week, he sent them out in pairs and they came back, right? They were uh, preaching, they were healing the sick. They had shared just minutes ago, hours ago, in this miraculous feeding of 5,000. We have these moments in our walk with the Lord, right? So they're on this spiritual high. Everything with my Jesus is good, man. We're just nailing it. And that can be dangerous, can't it? Spiritual blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. Our blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. Otherwise, we tend to become pampered children instead of mature sons and daughters of our Lord. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. Each new experience of testing demands of us more faith and more courage. And that's what God is shaping in us. Remember Herod last week? Who did he think Jesus was? Who did Herod think Jesus was? John the Baptist. Was Herod right? No. Bad Herod. The disciples at this moment think he's who? A ghost. Well, that makes total sense. They think he's a ghost. How often human nature replaces spiritual perspective and they mistake him for a ghost. Even though hours before he feeds 10,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. Or five loaves and two fish. No matter how you move that around, that's not a lot of food. And they think he's a ghost. And so they cry out because they're terrified. And with compassion, he says what? Take courage. It is I. In verse 50. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do you know what that it is I means? From the Old Testament, I am. Remember we read that earlier? I am. It's the same words. It literally means I am. We recognize that I am language from Exodus 3, 13 and 14. When Moses was talking, it says, Who shall I say sent me? And Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, who, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in these miracle accounts, so that we understand that he is the I am, the great I am. Essentially, they're fighting words, and that's what gets them on the cross. 
this miracle of walking on the water and stopping the wind that we just read ties to the miracle of the 5,000 because Jesus is proclaiming, I am the I am of the Old Testament. This desolate place, they're in a desolate uh, hillside, if you will. And the bread, the five loaves, by Jesus here in the New Testament, Mark 6, most likely refers back to the Lord's provision of the manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. What about the 12 baskets left over? There's lots of things about the 12 baskets. I'm not going to get into those. We don't have time. But let's look at 2 Kings 4, 24, I'm sorry, 42 through 44. A man came from uh, Baal Shalashah, I suppose, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. And his attendant said, what? Well, I set this before a hundred minutes, not enough. But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Jesus is the same as his heavenly father. Way back in Second Kings, it's happening in the New Testament times. How about the walking on the water? Let's talk about Job 9 verse 8. God, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. The other wording is treads upon the heights of the sea, walking on water. Jesus is the great I am. But verse 52 tells us that the disciples missed it. These men spent time with Jesus every day, but they miss it. We need to be immersed in the Lord, for even then we're prone to miss it. Imagine if we're not immersed. If we're immersed and we miss it, what happens if we're not immersed in the Lord? We don't stand a chance. If we're not in prayer, if we're not in the Word, if we're not in church, if we're not in a small group, if we're not serving in some capacity, for Christ and for Christianity to have the effect that He needed to have in the world, we can see why it is critical for Christ to make certain that we knew, know who He is and who He was. Amen? He's the great I am. He shows compassion. I am. He comes alongside us as a shepherd. I am. He feeds 5,000. I am. We're satisfied in Him. I am. There's an abundance left over. I am. He's praying for us. I am. He walks on water. I am. We cry out to Him. I am. We are terrified. I am. The winds stop. I am. He tests us. I am. We gain no insight from certain things. I am. Our hearts are hard. I am. Clearly, knowing who Jesus is during the storms of life will have a huge impact on how we process the storm and how we process and accept the outcome of that storm. Amen? He tells them to take courage, do not be afraid. Right? In red letters, take courage, do not be afraid. But what's stuck right in the middle of that? Take courage, do not be afraid. What does he say? I am. It is I. That's what's stuck in the middle of that. We can take courage. We cannot be afraid, but we've got to stick Jesus right in the middle of everything. This component, the understanding of it is I, or the I am, is what fuels the courage. Amen? The I am fuels the courage. The I am restricts the fear. But the opposite's true. The lack of I am, the lack of it is I, will fuel the fear and restrict our courage. The New King James Version 
actually says here, doesn't say take courage, it is I, it says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so Matthew Henry says, he, he has a little thing, he says, we can be cheerful and not fearful when God's in the midst of our storms. We can be cheerful and not fearful because it is I is right in the middle. Amen? When we consider these two miracles, we can see that Jesus Christ brings both provision and protection. He brings provision and protection. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want and I shall fear no evil. Pretty cool stuff. 